You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking with Brian Carroll, a programmer at No Red Ink and one of the main contributors to the Rock programming language. Based on Brian's experience using WebAssembly in practice, we talk about some of the benefits and challenges of using WebAssembly, discuss why WebAssembly adoption might not be as high as it could be today, and speculate about what the future might hold for it. And now, WebAssembly in practice. All right, Brian, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So I know you've done a lot of WebAssembly stuff in practice. Like, for example, just on Rock alone, you've done the Web REPL, which is like getting a compiler to work. That that's a, a Rust project that's compiling to WebAssembly and running in the browser. And then also inside that compiler, you've implemented generating raw WebAssembly bytes from scratch, <laughs> which then also that Web REPL <laughs> generates in the browser and then executes in the browser. And you gave a very cool talk at Go to Copenhagen recently about. Uh, like how all that works. But whenever I bring up WebAssembly around people, there's always a question that comes up sooner or later, which is, do you think WebAssembly is going to replace JavaScript and make JavaScript obsolete? And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Right. So I think it depends on your, your the, the timeline you're thinking on, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I think I don't really see that much sign of that happening right uh, like immediately. I think it, the, the uptake of it on the front end for web pages has been fairly slow, I would say. I mean, I think yeah. some languages are like, there's, I think there's Rust frameworks and things that use it for front end. I, I don't really use those though, but I think maybe like if you're, t- if you're talking 20 years from now, will we be looking back at JavaScript? <laughs> what were we, what were we doing? I don't know. Because so one, one thought I have on it is that we are now, so the, the web started off as a, a thing for sharing documents, right? You know, right. Phys- physics papers initially, and then like, you know, other, oh, but I think already Tim Berners-Lee had, had bigger plans for it when he called it the World Wide Web. <laughs> but it's not, on, it, so it was for documents and now it is also like a thing for um, distributing software applications in general, right? So it's like, yeah. It's like the App Store or Google Play or whatever. It's 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 that, but um, you know, but different. But we do write applications for the web in a way that sort of pretends they're documents and then undocuments the like turn <laughs> yeah documents anymore. And like, but they kind of are pretending to be so that the web will render them. And like, if you sort of look at the frameworks that people have for things like iOS apps, Android apps, uh, desktop apps, if you look at how they do things, they don't start with an abstraction of this is a bit like a document, except not really. And let's make it a bit different from that. And they don't have some like CSS that's like this, whatever that, whatever that's called, aspect uh, orientation or something. I can't remember the name of that thing. Where you, but you don't really start off with like three different languages for, you know, structure and style and uh, functionality. So like, if the web is now a thing that is for delivering software, which maybe it isn't, but it's also for documents, but maybe it bifurcates into, you know, two different things that are one for one of which is, is a, an app delivery platform and one is a document rendering platform and maybe they coexist and maybe there's some advantage to like having the app delivery part of that be more similar to other things like to just that you don't have to have these funny abstractions um that you just you, you know deliver deliver an app that runs in some kind of binary format because that's more efficient to deliver and to run and then you know tell it what pixels to draw on the screen rather than going through a big complicated pipeline of dom and cssom and 
all the rest of that stuff and just be more normal graphics. So that's a way I could see things maybe working out. And I know in the web, they'll be, they'll all exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like that way you put it, undocumentifying things in order to turn them into apps. Like <laughs> that's a good word. I think that kind of uh, maybe speaks to why a lot of us, myself included, just kind of find the whole idea of Electron just really kind of objectionable at, at like mm. a software engineering level. Yeah. Um, because it's essentially like you've taken a domain where you don't need that, you don't have that constraint, then you've sort of documentified it unnecessarily yes. when it doesn't want to be a document. And then you go through the additional step of undocumentifying it again in order to get it back into something that's yep. more app development-like. And yeah. I, there's there's absolutely good reasons for why Electron is popular, and I totally understand that. But there's definitely something innately frustrating about like knowing yeah. that that's like the popular way to build cross-platform apps is intentionally documentifying <laughs> and then undocumentifying <laughs> everything. Yeah, I think that kind of drives a lot of software engineers crazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not not to mention the resource consumption and you know all the other stuff. Yeah, I mean it's not <laughs> just like yeah, it isn't just our own kind of aesthetic. <laughs> Um, objection to the complexity. It's like it, it does cost uh, something in responsiveness and um, and resource usage and and all that type of stuff. And it's partly responsible for the big gap between like how much hardware has gotten faster and how badly software is kind of getting. <laughs> yeah, chewing up all the cycles to do pointless things like uh, <laughs> you know turn things into documents and uh, make them not documents anymore. Yeah, I appreciate the actually my first ever recorded conference talk was at Strange Loop to 2014, 2015, something like that. And it was actually this is like before I got into Elm and it was um it was called web apps without web servers. And kind of the way like the way I started off the talk was actually now that I'm I'm thinking back to this, I gave an example of a, an app that doesn't exist anymore. It was called Hipmunk. It's like Chipmunk without the C. Oh, okay. um, and it was for booking flights. And they had a really nice UX for booking flights. Uh, I still miss that. I, I used to use it right up to the when they got uh, well went away. And I asked the audience. I said, "Okay, you know, how many people here book flights? And raise your hand if, whenever you're booking a flight, you use an app like a, a native app. And then, okay, how many people use a website or a web app? And it was overwhelmingly like eighty percent of people were like, "I do it on a website." I said, "Yeah, like that makes sense. You know, even though the app exists, you choose to use the website. So why?" And, and kind of my hypothesis is that the web browser is the most efficient software delivery platform ever because you just type yeah. in the name of the thing you want, which could be you know ending in .com usually, and yeah. press enter, and you're using it, and you're using the latest version of it. Yeah, and right. it always ups. There's <laughs> never a, oh, do you want to install updates? Do you want to accept new permissions? It's just as streamlined as it could possibly be, short of reading your mind so you don't even have to type it in. That's like the only way you could make that app delivery process faster. But yeah, like then you kind of uh, have all the sort of baggage of it not being designed for app delivery other than happening by coincidence to be very good at it. <laughs> yeah, we, we we built, we figured out ways to build that on top of a document serving system. I read something recently about uh, Tim Berners-Lee and him, you know, when he, when he came up with all this. Uh, oh, yeah? stuff and i was surprised to learn i have i always had this mental picture that the web was created for and in fact i just started off this conversation with that that it was made for documents and then like later we built other stuff on top of it but actually from day one cern had uh, all these different systems and all different databases and uh generated html from those like what was there from the start so 
It wasn't just static documents. Huh. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah, I think there's definitely a, a sort of a spectrum of it's not just like, you know, you add any bit of custom interactivity and suddenly you're a web application and, you know, you should jump straight to WebAssembly, etc. I think to JavaScript's credit, if you just want to add a little bit of functionality to an otherwise static page, you know, give or take the built-in interactions like dropdowns and whatnot, I think it's fine for that. Like, I, I don't know that, you know, JavaScript is a, is a problem at that scale. Like, we have on the Rock uh, documentation website, there's a tiny little bit of JavaScript and that just like makes the like interactive search work. And I don't feel like we, I, I need something much bigger and more powerful for that. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have gigantic applications with hundreds of thousands of lines of code in them. And at that point, clearly, we don't want to be in document land pretending it's not document land using JavaScript. Um, and Elm certainly helps a lot with that, <laughs> uh, no doubt. And I think, yeah, I think that's right. There is that um, difference between, there's two kind of different categories there. There's like a, there's, yeah, website and web app maybe um, would be a way to describe it. And I think that's sort of always been, that's been there for a long time too, because I think WebAssembly is sort of doing in a different way what Java tried to do a long time ago. Like in the late 90s, Java was, you had Java applets running in, in web pages, but it didn't take off. And I was never quite sure, uh, <laughs> I never quite understood uh, why exactly that was. I think it just wasn't ergonomic enough to to get them up and running. But from reading like interviews with people like Brendan Eich and so on, uh, who who created JavaScript at that time in in Netscape? I think they had uh, this idea of it was Java for protect for, for professional programmers and JavaScript for just hacking stuff together. And of right. course, the web, the web kind of got big from yeah. the hacking <laughs> stuff together side rather than the professional developer side. But like the the typed kind of more bytecode approach was seen as being more suitable for professional developers. And maybe that is just like WebAssembly is bringing that back a little bit. Well, I do remember something that was a big problem with Java applets from the user side was startup times. So I remember that anytime you used a web page that had a Java applet on it, there was always a loading spinner while you waited for that, I don't know, it was like booting up the VM or something. The last time I remember using a Java applet was in the very early days of Facebook. I think this was actually back when it was called The Facebook. I was in college when it came out. It came to my college and like when I was a sophomore and uh, so second year. <laughs> I don't know if that term sophomore is like used outside the US uh, to mean second no, year. I, I knew yeah. that, but only from like what, you know, seeing US movies and stuff. <laughs> Something I do appreciate about the term sophomore being used for second year is that I, I believe the definition of sophomore is like a wise fool. It's like someone who doesn't know, like, you know, they know enough, but they don't realize how little they know yet. It's like, okay, you finished first year, you have misplaced confidence. You're a sophomore. <laughs> so, me down to size a little bit. But <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, so I, I was a wise fool when uh, the Facebook came to our college or university. And I remember that at some point they added the like photos feature. And originally it wasn't big into photos. And uh, if you wanted to bulk upload photos, you had to do it through a little Java applet. So everything else would have been HTML, I guess, PHP behind the scenes and then JavaScript. And then as soon as you wanted to bulk upload photos, it was like, okay, hang on, we got to load this Java applet. And the reason I knew it was a Java applet was because you had to like wait for the loading spinner for it to <laughs> boot up the Java applet. to, And that was still faster than uploading the photos one at a time. But yeah. and this is all before smartphones, like the iPhone was, you know, didn't even exist yet. Sure, yeah. 
So that was at least one of the downsides uh, from a user experience perspective was the loading times. And certainly I know that in WebAssembly, they've spent a lot of time talking about like designing it to be able to be parsed while it's like decoded as it's streaming in so that it can basically have zero startup time. And I, I assume at least in part, that's a reaction to that big downside of Java applets back in the day. I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, the, it, the format itself focuses a lot on keeping the size down. Like they use, they use a number, all of the numbers are encoded in a, in this LEB format that kind of, if the number is smaller than 256, then it takes up one byte and this type, or sorry, 128, it takes up only one byte. And if it only uses up two or three bytes or four bytes, if, if it needs them, that sort of thing. So they're, I actually didn't know that. That's cool. So kind of like uh, protocol buffers. Uh, I, I, yeah, I've heard of they, they do the same thing as I understand it. Like they have a variable width encoding for numbers. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So I was thinking about this in the context of what is it that makes WebAssembly able to unlock things that are like fundamentally impossible in JavaScript? In other words, like if you're like, okay, let's take the pre-WebAssembly world and I want to build a really advanced web application in the browser. What's not going to work out about that that could work out if I had access to WebAssembly? And I think the answer basically comes down to performance. That's the only thing that I can think of that WebAssembly can do that JavaScript, like at a, at a possibility level, can't. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's, yeah, particularly now the, the, now the TypeScript exists and the types uh, side of it is kind of t- taken care of just at least to whatever degree you believe that's true. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's very diplomatic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, TypeScript does kind of apply some types to it. So that, there's that. I think that's one aspect of it. But, uh, you know, WebAssembly lets you use it lets you use languages that you might also have in your back end and share code with that as well. So there's some benefits like that too. But like if you're, if you are, but yeah, those are, yeah, there's there are different categories of benefits. But I think in terms of just what does the user care about as opposed to the developer, I think performance is the main one. The one interesting part of that is that it's, it's early on performance. It's, it's like performance from the, from the first run. So with JavaScript, the way all the engines work is they are interpreters until they decide to be compilers. <laughs> yeah. They are, you know, they're doing the just in time. If you have some function that runs um, 10,000 times or whatever, which I mean, the only ones, the only things that would actually really do that are like in a React app, you're, you're, you know, the rendering bits right. in the React framework might be running that many times, but your initialization function or your draw my login form function isn't running that many times. Um, so those things will be optimized and it will figure out which things are numbers and which things are objects and which things are strings and emit machine code that only deals with those types and so on, and then do various optimization things. So, but with WebAssembly, um, you get directly to that final optimized form. Um, and it's actually the same form uh, as the compiled, you know, the JIT compiled um, optimized JavaScript function ends up at. It, it ends up in this like, format that so v8 has the, has this their uh what do they call it turbofan engine so it has a certain format so v8 turns WebAssembly and javascript into the same format in 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 turbofan and that but you get that from the beginning with uh, WebAssembly. you don't have to wait for it to warm up and run ten thousand times because the reason they wait for it to run that many times is because if you if you're not totally sure about the types 
and uh, what you can optimize out, then it ends up being a disaster to have compiled it because you waited, <laughs> you waited for the compilation and it turns out you were wrong and now you've got to go back and just run it, uh, interpret it anyway. And so it was a waste of time. So with WebAssembly, you do get straight to that um, optimized uh, form and everything runs. So your initial render um, should be faster from that point of view. I, I don't actually know size-wise what... Um, what uh, I've never compared a similar app in JavaScript and went, well, written the same app twice. Be interesting to see. I bet you can find those because that real world uh, yeah. project probably has that. Uh, oh, that could be, similar. actually. I don't know how similar you could make those. You'd have to find some language that compiles to both, I suppose, so that you're not including weird things, <laughs> uh, artifacts from having two different languages compared. But Right. So years ago, I was talking to Lynn Clark and asking that same question. And this is in the context of Elm and like, you know, should Elm compile to WebAssembly, et cetera. Uh, and uh, her guess was that, you know, this is obviously speculation. And then she like worked on WebAssembly team and stuff like that uh, at Mozilla. And her guess was that it could be pretty similar in terms of overall file size, because on the one hand, you have certain functions that are just baked into JavaScript where, you know, the, the amount of like uh, encoding that you'd have to do in WebAssembly to represent those same functions would be, you know, more <laughs> um, to do that same amount of work. But on the on the flip side, you would tend to have a lot of other things that would be represented more compactly in WebAssembly than they would be in JavaScript. And so there's probably some sort of constant overhead that the WebAssembly things are, are dealing with in terms of having to sort of uh, recreate some portion of the standard library for basic operations. But on the flip side, you don't have to deal with. There's like some some multiplier of savings. Also, that's the yeah. guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so basically, that's the browser providing you certain things for free because the browser is, yeah. is has the JavaScript engine in it and it defines what functions like JSON dot parse and exactly that can do big complicated things for you that you don't have to write yourself. So, like, if we're talking about um, like we started talking about this from the point of view of, you know, how do things end up, say, long term, right? So you could just provide those things from the platform. You could provide some kind of standard library. That's a good point. Yeah, browsers could expand the scope of like what's available to WebAssembly. Yeah. Um, so it, you, uh, and that's something that they have um, certainly talked about in terms of um, the the web APIs being made available uh built-in functions being made available to, to WebAssembly and host values being passed in. So, but yeah, who knows? Yeah. So it, it could happen. So, but I think like given the current state of things, yeah, you get more built into the browser with JavaScript. And I think that it's one of the main reasons not to bother <laughs> moving, moving to WebAssembly because, you know, JavaScript will, will get it done. Going back to the uh, JIT question. So something I kind of wondered is, I remember back when WebAssembly first came out, some of the earliest demos were showing like really advanced 3D games that could now run in the browser that, um, you know, nobody had demonstrated before, certainly. But I wonder if, and I think this would maybe highlight some better some of the differences between WebAssembly and JavaScript. But let's imagine a theoretical uh, compiler that could take WebAssembly and compile it to JavaScript for some reason. Uh, and it would try to compile it to JavaScript that's designed so that if it does get JIT compiled, it will compile to 
very, very as close as possible to the original WebAssembly. I wonder what that would look like if you took like one of those 3D games. Would it still run, you know, fast enough? Yeah. So you can do very something very similar to that. So the WebAssembly project was preceded by Asm.js. Oh yeah, yeah. I forgot about uh, this. ASM.js. Yeah, yeah. So and that was and the Emscripten compiler for C and C plus plus was originally uh, a kind of. Uh, yeah, C, C++ compiler, maybe built on top of Clang or something that emitted um, JavaScript and it would do, it would emit a certain subset of JavaScript and it was based on an actual knowledge of what the, of the, opt- what the JavaScript JIT would do with it. So it was like basically trying to hack the optimizer. And so it was doing things like if you knew that if you had a variable called X and you knew that it was, you wanted it to be an integer, then you would reference things like X or zero. Um, where, uh, and the R being a single pipe, which is the bitwise R, and the bitwise R in JavaScript only operates on numbers, whereas a double pipe can operate on different things and does stuff with null and undefined and all that kind of thing. Uh, so if you do a single pipe on a, on a variable with, with zero, it does nothing. Uh, so oring a number with zero gives you, same, gives you the same number back, but it's a type hint to the optimizer. And so the JIT will look at that and go, ah, I know I can definitely do my tricks now. And I, I know this has to be a number coming out the other end of this. Integer specifically, so, right? An integer specifically. Yeah, 32-bit, yeah. Yeah. And so, and I think, I think it's also 32 bits, maybe. Um, yeah, it has to be because it starts out as a 64-bit float, so you can't truncate to a, you know, 64-bit integer because it, then it couldn't have been a float anyway because you can't throw 64-bit integers worth of integer data in a float it's certainly an integer when it comes out the other side so if you do in javascript if you do like 1.4 or 0 i think you get one out or something like that so uh so it'll it'll you know semantically change it to a one integer instead of 1.4 and then it will or it so that expression evaluates to an integer and then there's other things like if you do plus empty string then the result of that is guaranteed to be a string. So you can do type hints like this to let to let the a optimizer know what your types are. And ASM.js was basically a whole library built or a whole sort of sub-language built on top of this. And then they made um Mscript and compiled to that. And that was like a prototype that that project then went further and became WebAssembly. So I bet there are, in fact, I bet when they did that there was some benchmark between asm.js and WebAssembly. So I bet you could find the same game. <laughs> yeah. So that'd be really interesting to compare just to see, I mean, what what is the difference? Because, I mean, maybe the difference is only in startup time, but I would have to imagine that there are some cases where even if you're trying as hard as you can to get the JavaScript to JIT to what you want, you still can't quite get it there. And I don't know if that would be noticeable in a resource-constrained setting like that, but maybe maybe it would be, maybe it wouldn't be. My, I'd have the same intuition that you would get a few percent in, uh, improvement from just having being definite about what the types are instead of trying to hint your way there. So another example of things that I think fall into the category of things that WebAssembly can do that JavaScript can't, besides uh, you know initial startup time, is I actually think 64-bit integers is, as far as I know, one of them. So JavaScript yeah. has 64-bit floats, and if you got a 64-bit float, you can fit a 32-bit integer worth of, you know, uh, precise. I think it's like it goes up to like 52-bit precision or something like that. Yeah. But you can't get a 64-bit integer 
uh, out of that. And I don't think the optimizers will optimize to it. Uh, that was true the last time I checked. And then uh, and then you got big int, but big int is an arbitrary sized heap allocated integer. That's certainly not a 64-bit integer either. So if you want to do a bunch of stuff with 64-bit integers, like I'm thinking, for example, of in Rock, we have uh, decimal, which is implemented using 264. Well, it's 128-bit integer, but that's under the hood, like 264-bit integers. You can do that quite efficiently in WebAssembly, but I don't know if you could do that efficiently in JavaScript, even if it was jitting as, you know, to, to the best of its ability. That's true. You would need to implement it as like at least three integers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> it would be really awkward. But, uh, probably four. Yes. Yeah, it's probably possible. <laughs> it is, but I don't want to do it. Yeah. And if in the future they introduce SIMD primitives, which I don't. That's not the future. That's, uh, that's implemented actually. In WebAssembly? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, did, I had no idea. Oh, yeah. uh, which ones? Do you know? Um, it's, well, it depends on what you're running on. If you're running on x86, I, I don't know. It's up to the engine to decide. Like you, it's, huh. a, it's a higher level of, of abstraction than it gives you 128-bit um, integers and um, operations on them and so on. And so, so if you then run that in a browser or whatever other WebAssembly engine you're running on, it can decide what to compile that to in terms of machine code. So if it wants to lower, lower it to machine code rather than interpreting it, because you have that choice. Uh, but yeah, it can turn it into whatever instructions it likes. Fascinating. I had no idea it was doing that. Yeah, because that's tricky, because I know a lot of the uh, SIMD instructions on ARM versus x64 are quite different. <laughs> I mean, some there's some overlap, certainly. Okay, yeah, I, I'm not familiar enough with, with SIMD to know about those. Yeah, I, I suppose they've either extracted some common subset or favored one or the other. I'm not sure. So in the Rock compiler, we already have a couple of different sections where we have a sort of Rust configuration that says, okay, if we're targeting ARM, then do this. If we're targeting uh, x64, then do this. And it's going to get the same answer, but they use different SIMD instructions. And then usually we have like an else, don't use SIMD. But maybe we should be more precise and say like, Ah, if WebAssembly, then use this. I, I don't know what the the equivalent is. Yeah, but. it's a. There are versions of it. So there are, there are versions of the um, format, the the instruction set. So they brought out an MVP about six years ago or something. Oh wow! Um, there was that was the MVP version. So everybody supports that. And then there's so there's this backward compatibility whole you know thing. Sure. Where is with everything, right? Yeah. Uh, so like different um, depending on where you're running it you might get support for that or you might not. And so it's, okay. you know, like everything else. So uh, if you, so you need to know, you kind of need to start getting specific about what you're targeting exactly. It's a little bit like with with CPUs, you know, you, you might right. have a slightly different version of the instruction set that you're compiling to and uh, you need to know what you are compiling to. So if you try to compile SMD stuff and then your target you try to run it on doesn't have that, it'll just reject it as an invalid module and... Oh man. So that's, yeah, that's kind of rough for portability though. Yeah. But I suppose you get into the same sort of situation you had with ES6 was coming out and they were bringing out new features in, in JavaScript where, where, you know, the language evolves and like, well, which version do I support and what do I emit versus what, you know? So it's the kind of thing where if you're running in a browser environment, you would do things like check, well, what's my minimum required browser version and who supports this and all that stuff. Now, is that just for browser version or is it also possible that you have some WebAssembly code that's doing CPU specific stuff? And if you're, 
Okay. Okay. So, so that's all abstracted away somehow. Yes. Yeah. Got it. Um, so yeah, web is, you can't have CPU specific stuff. It's yeah, it's an it's an okay. Absurd. That's yeah, that's really interesting. I want to take a look at that now because that might be relevant for Rock when we get into SIMD stuff. Because I don't relish the idea of. I mean, certainly like SIMD is very powerful in terms of the performance it can unlock, but I don't like the idea of having Rock have conditional compilation, like doing different things depending on what CPU you want to build for. I'd really rather not open that yeah. <laughs> Pandora's box. Yeah. Very cool. I was also thinking about sort of going back to this original question of like, is WebAssembly going to take over? There is another factor here, which is languages sort of, let's, for lack of a better term, say not wanting to compile to JavaScript, but wanting to run in the browser. Yeah. So I have heard that C Sharp, which compiles to WebAssembly and has a framework called Blazor for doing stuff in the browser, is sort of secretly quite popular (laughs) in companies where they kind of, make a lot of internal only software, like really big, you yeah. know, international companies. Yeah. They have a ton of C-sharp on their backend or for their internal stuff. And they want to make internal use only web apps and they don't want to do it in multiple languages. So this is a, a really great fit for them. I haven't really seen that escape outside of that context though. Like it doesn't seem like, I'm, I'm not seeing a lot of Blazor blog posts on Hacker News. It doesn't seem like the startup crowd, you know, people making greenfield applications are that interested in it. Yeah, I have the same impression. I, I don't see, I mean, I don't see a lot of blog posts and conference talks and things about the C sharp world in in general. But but I guess I don't know. Maybe it's not <laughs> it's not my area. So I suppose I'm not watching that. But yeah, I haven't I haven't heard much about that other than I mean the equivalent in in Rust. I suppose as I mentioned earlier, I think they have front end frameworks that that do that. So then you can have your front end and back end in Rust if that's what you want. I've heard of one Rust front-end WebAssembly framework, and it's called U, spelled Y-E-W, which is a really unfortunate name to have a conversation about. <laughs> it gets really confusing really quickly. What do you think of U? <laughs> but also, I mean, I, I have seen things about it, but I haven't really, I haven't really heard of any like real-world use cases yet of people actually using it to build something. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, th- I mean, I think the yeah the adoption of it certainly for front-end has been a lot slower than than I thought it would have been when I when I first started doing like tinkering around with it. But yeah, so it's definitely been pretty slow to get going. So I have a guess as to why the adoption of let's say the scenario where I have a language that I'm happy with on the back end and I want to use that to build my front end, I have a guess as to why that might not be seeing a lot of adoption, which is that if I don't want to do the sort of 3D games thing. And I don't want to just draw straight to the graphics card. I don't want to reinvent all the layout primitives and everything from scratch. If I actually want to use the primitives that are built into the browser, which is to say the DOM and CSS and so forth, I can't make DOM nodes directly from WebAssembly. I can't have the experience where I just drop in my WebAssembly code and it just works. Somebody has to set up the sort of back and forth dance between JavaScript and WebAssembly so that JavaScript can make the DOM nodes, then WebAssembly sends JavaScript instructions saying, hey, make this DOM node, et cetera, which does seem like something that you could make be a good drop-in experience. It seems like that's a barrier that, as far as I am aware, has not really been crossed in very many contexts. Yeah, I mean, what you would need there is your framework needs to generate JavaScript as well as WebAssembly. So, for example... I know Mscripten does that. So like 
if you're writing C and compiling it with MScript in and you do like a printf, it will hook up console log to that and it'll generate JavaScript that does that and so on. So you, there is a layer where you need to connect up WebAssembly to the browser APIs and that layer has to be JavaScript, but you can generate that JavaScript or you can make a library that does it and knows how to interact with your WebAssembly. You probably more want to generate it so that you don't have to provide all of that JavaScript for every possible web API mm, at the time. True, true. Um, but I think, yeah, so some form of code gen or compiler needs to happen where you are yeah, generating both, basically. I wonder if you could get away with making sort of like a bunch of like tiny JavaScript files, each of which corresponds to one piece of the browser APIs, and then one piece of WebAssembly that goes with that, and then do some sort of dead code elimination, like, oh, this WebAssembly thing never gets called, therefore, we don't need to include this JavaScript thing. Just something where you could not have to make the C-sharp compiler compile all the way to JavaScript in order to get that benefit. Yeah, I think absolutely that would be a way to do a framework like that. I don't know how Blazor itself works. I've never looked at it, but yeah, if you were doing something like that, if I was to go about building something like that or work on a team that did, then that would probably be the approach. Like you make JavaScript libraries for every web API you want to interact with and then make hooks for that into WebAssembly and then decide, you know, maybe generate a list of which ones you want and emit those into your final output. So you end up with a final output of a WebAssembly file and a JavaScript file that goes with it. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's one hurdle that sort of would need to be overcome. But then I guess another one is that, so let's say that somebody does this. Now you've got, let's say Rust as an example. Okay, you've got your JavaScript WebAssembly sort of coordination happening, and you've got your web application front end written in Rust. Now you have no library ecosystem because you can't access the JavaScript ecosystem, or at least not easily, because you can't just directly call JavaScript functions straight from Rust. You set, set something else up for that well, in the same way that you're you're doing the DOM stuff or something I mean, along those lines. You sort of can, though, because when you create your WebAssembly instance, you give it an object of functions, and it's it's got two layers deep, so you can have namespaces. And those namespaces, they usually refer to them as modules. So one way to give to provide console.log to a WebAssembly module would be make an object with a key called console, and then that in turn has an, an object with a function called log in it. Uh, sorry, a key with the string log and then a function. And so you can pass that in, and it's essentially linking your JavaScript to your WebAssembly. And so your WebAssembly has been compiled knowing that it's going to receive an object of that shape. And it must get an object of a certain shape with a certain functions in it, expecting certain modules with certain functions. And it knows how to call them. And uh, now it can only call them with numbers. So with console.log, you actually kind of have to wrap it in some other stuff that knows how to do it. <laughs> right, right. But that's how you do that. So yeah, so if you have some JavaScript library that you want to use and you want to use it from WebAssembly, then you have to do some glue code to make it work where you need to pass it an object of functions and then you probably need to do some interfacing with that but you can do it and like frameworks such as wasm bindgen let you do this they let you kind of say a function exists on my page called this dot that and you can call this dot that with three numbers and it'll do some stuff <laughs> uh -huh. and then you can call it and you can give it a you know a rust type signature and it'll figure out what code to generate for that. 
that restriction on you can only pass numbers between WebAssembly and JavaScript reminds me of another challenge, which is UTF-16. Because most languages that would be compiling to WebAssembly are going to have UTF-8 strings. Actually, C-sharp probably does UTF-16. I don't know that for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised because it came yeah. from Microsoft if they were UTF-16. Even but certainly stuff. Rust yeah. and most languages today are using UTF-8 strings, which means that every time you want to send those to JavaScript, you gotta somebody's got to convert them to UTF-16. Yes, that's right, yeah. And I think typically that's done in, in JavaScript. So JavaScript has a text decoder and text encoder, and you can create a text encoder and a text decoder and use them to encode and decode. And by default, they're UTF-8. And it's getting... <laughs> they used to support more stuff, and then that actually got harder at some point. So, huh. yeah, I think it's expected that it's UTF-8 that it's encoding and decoding from. But it's I did some experimenting with it, actually, on how fast is it to do that encoding and decoding. And I took some English text and some Chinese text and like copied it lots of times or whatever. It just made right. it sufficiently big. And I ran some experiments encoding and decoding and copying in and out of WebAssembly. And what I found was the encoding and decoding is almost negligible compared with just doing a copy. It's almost the same as just doing a copy. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, it's not quite, but like it's not far off. I can't remember the exact numbers now. It was a while ago I did this, but it wasn't a striking difference. It was just kind of, yeah, if you're going to make a copy anyway, coming in and out of WebAssembly, which you kind of are because you want to make it into a JavaScript string, which has probably got some different memory representation internally in the browser. Right. Then, yeah, it's kind of fine, actually. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I also, I didn't think about that. Yeah, implicitly, you sort of have to do a copy. You can't just be like, it's, it's not like in Rust where you can be like, here, take ownership of this string. It's yours yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, you can't do that. It's like internally, browsers often use a rope data structure. But mm. oh, okay. So yeah, it's, it's even if you did, yeah, it's, it's a completely different in memory representation, even if it were the same encoding. You can't just give it the bytes. Yeah. 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 Cool. Okay. That, that's good to know. Okay. So yeah, you make a good point that it sounds like it is feasible to do some sort of JavaScript interop if you really wanted to, to sort of get a foothold in the ecosystem. But I guess another point that comes up is if you've got a new project and you're like, okay, we need to get up and running as fast as possible. You know, we're, we're, we're going to be building this big ambitious web application, but we want to ship an MVP, you know, sooner rather than later, et cetera. Yes, we have a language that we really like on the back end, but, you know, not so much that we're willing to sacrifice our, you know, startup get things into, you know, customers' hands fast mentality. I wonder if it's just sort of the things that we talked about being just a little bit too much of a hurdle to justify, you know, using something when when everybody already knows JavaScript and yada, yada, yada. I mean, I don't, like, personally, I'm like, no, use Elm. But, <laughs> uh, but, but I know that as I talk to people about using Elm, a lot of the times that's sort of the shape of a common answer that I hear is like, well... I can get up and running with React right away. I already know React and, you know, maybe I know C Sharp or Rust or whatever on the back end, but I don't know how to do web things with that. And it sounds like there's going to be, you know, things are going to be different. And, you know, maybe there'd be benefits when I'm big and successful, but I don't, I, I'm worried about getting big and successful first. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's a reasonable argument, but it, a lot of that depends on who are you, who's your team, right? So totally. If you have a team of, Rust developers or C-sharp developers or whatever, 
then maybe your quickest way to get up and running is to use the framework that does this stuff for you. Because like there, any framework that's out there will have a way to use the DOM and to do, you know, fetch. Yeah. And like, maybe you don't have a way to do local storage and maybe you don't have a way to do like use the internationalization API or the full screen API or the, you know, whatever. Any sure, of yeah. There's loads of these 200 of these APIs or something, 120, sorry, 120 APIs. But like normally I've really only used kind of two of them, <laughs> the DOM and <laughs> like, I mean, I've probably used local, you know, that's not quite true. I've used local storage a bit and that kind of thing. But there's definitely know, a power law distribution. Like it's not even 80, 20, it's like 99, yeah, one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's that clear cut. I think, you know, if your language does have a framework that will hook you up with the DOM and fetch, then that might be your quickest way to get going. And like you made a point earlier about the, you know, all the libraries that there are for JavaScript, but what do you want? To do, I'm just thinking like date pickers, you know, stuff like that. That's always the, my go-to yeah. example of, it's not like a, some off the shelf UI thing that's not specific to any one app, but that's pretty complicated. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. So yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, I think probably in, in, in cases like that, yeah, I think JavaScript is, it's probably the way to go there, really. I mean, there just yeah, there just isn't that level of support for, for stuff like that. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I mean, this is all just me trying to guess why it's not used more. Yeah. Like, I mean, if I were starting a new, you know, front end project today and it were a big complicated web app, I would just reach for Elm and that would be the end of it. But yeah. let's say that I didn't want to use Elm for whatever reason, but there was some language I really did want to use, like a Rust or a C Sharp or something what would it take to get me to use those via WebAssembly? And I think, I mean, maybe the answer is just that, you know, I haven't used Blazor. I haven't used you. <laughs> uh, maybe the name is the problem. Um, it's just, it's just, people start talking about it and they just can't get through conversations. So they're just like, you know what? Let's just use a different technology. <laughs> That's probably happened with some technology in the past. I don't know if it's this one. But... You just can't talk about it. <laughs> Yeah, there's the thing we've been talking about, which is you've got a team that's used to it. But as you pointed out, if you want to do nice UI stuff, that's all going to be in JavaScript and the ecosystem isn't really there to do it. And the integration with the DOM isn't probably like good enough or yeah, isn't developed enough if you want to do really nice UI. So that's probably why you're hearing it of it in internal tools and you just kind of go, okay, I'm going to pick some CSS file and then it'll, it's fine. You know, the other department can complain about it if they want. Yeah. And then the other thing is if you have something heavy that you want to do and you want to do it in the front end for whatever your reasons are. So the examples of that would be the big heavy 3D game that you mentioned. Right. Or the project I worked on, which was the Rock REPL, where we had a compiler and we wanted to compile code in the browser so that we didn't have to deal with managing servers and so on. So that's, you know, if you've got some very heavy piece of code that you want to run in the front end and and yeah and for that rock rebel that was written in rust all written that whole the rock project is all written in, in rust we weren't going to just go do you know what we should just you know <laughs> right do rock.js and look implement the entire compiler in javascript it's just not, no way like it's not going to happen right. so so if you've got something heavy you want to do in the front end or you've got existing code that you want to get running into the front end without forking it they're the main drivers, I think, at the moment. 
But yeah, and I think the ecosystem would have to develop a bit in order for that there to start being more reasons than that. <laughs> yeah. Well, something I think would be really exciting that I would love to see is some way that you could use WebAssembly as the means to get to the end of building cross-platform applications that run in the browser and then also run on desktop apps and also run on phones yeah. without documentifying and then undocumentifying everything again. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. like actually going, you know, straight to the graphics card, doing your own layout and all that stuff. But one of the challenges I see there is accessibility. Because if you want to get accessibility in the browser, you got to have a DOM. Like that's just the way that's just the API that the browser exposes for screen readers. And as far as I know, there's not really any way around that unless maybe, and I don't, I haven't really investigated this, unless maybe you tried to do something like essentially just recreating that from scratch and just making it so that I don't even know if it's possible to detect whether a screen reader has been activated programmatically in the browser. But if you could, then maybe you could just, you know, read your own things out loud just by playing audio files. But I don't know. Right. Well, I mean, again, it depends on the time scale you're thinking of. So, yeah, some of what you're saying there is kind of rooted in in right now. But if you kind of think about, well, fundamentally, first principles thinking sort of a thing, like what's different between that and a desktop app? Like a desktop app renders pixels. Yeah. And says this pixel is blue and that pixel is black and that pixel is white. And then that makes a shape and that shape we recognize as the letter D and whatever. But yet assistive technology exists in that environment, right? So it can be done. So I think there's not a way to do that right now without a DOM, but DOM isn't the only way to do it. And maybe you make it look more like whatever the OS is doing for desktop. Yeah. That's true. I mean, there could be some new web APIs that might give you clues about that. I don't know what the trade-offs are there, or if that's something yeah. that we I mean, <laughs> can reasonably expect to ever happen. I think in order to have something be screen, work with a screen reader, you probably need it to have a concept of characters rather than pixels. So you need to have a font and characters, and they need to come together so that it can know what the characters are and read them. But you could do that using things more like web, what's it called, web GPU, or web, what's that thing called? WebGPU is the cross-platform sort of go straight to the graphics card thing. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd want something along those lines, you know, again, the same way that desktop apps do it. You're rendering characters into pixels. And so you could have a web API that did that, and you could send it characters and say, I want this to appear at this coordinate with these, and these are my glyphs for my font, and go and assemble that all together and display it on the screen in this place at this size. And then the browser would also say, well, I know that if I have a screen reader connected up to me, then I've just been sent what those characters are. Um, so not only do I know how to render them into pixels, I also know how to speak them. Right. I also remember that in a similar vein is, and I guess if, if you try today in JavaScript to like render things into a HTML canvas, you get kind of all the same categories of problems. Yeah. So one is accessibility and then another is like text selection and clipboard and things like that because uh, browsers yeah. have security policies around like, you know, you can't just say, hey, I want to put this in the clipboard, please. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> the user has to have actually selected something that I recognize in the DOM as a text box and then, you know, right. et cetera. Yeah, 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 fair point. Yeah, so I think like equivalents of all of those would need to be created in order for that to work. So today, yeah, that's not easy to do, but if we're talking about a kind of longer time horizon, then there's nothing fundamentally blocking it from being done. Just, you know, new web APIs would have to be 
created, but web APIs get created all the time. So, And I think that's something where that could be a strong enough pitch that it might cross the threshold into we start seeing widespread adoption of WebAssembly because being able to have one code base that you can, with a few tweaks for each yeah. different target, compile to Android, iOS, and desktop, and work in a browser has been something that companies have wanted for a long time. But in a lot of cases, what they've bounced off of is, okay, in some cases, it's it doesn't like look and feel like an iOS app or something like that. But I remember, you know, whenever I started using these, like uh, React Native, yeah. like React Native apps and stuff, like Airbnb famously did a big thing on that. Facebook tried it for a while. I remember thinking like, yeah, this doesn't look like the native apps on my phone, but I don't really care. Like, I'm fine with that. That's not that's not a big <laughs> deal to me. And yeah. but I think what does matter to people is performance. Like, does it feel laggy? And if it feels laggy, then people are unhappy. So, as I understand it, performance was the main reason that a lot of the documentify and then de-documentify on the phone efforts got scrapped was because of that. And WebAssembly seems like it could totally solve yeah. that problem because if you're compiling WebAssembly in the browser, that's one thing. But then of course if you've got a code base that can compile to WebAssembly in the browser, then you can compile to just, you know, what like native iOS, native Android, etc., and yeah. not have to have that whole middle layer at all. Yeah, like at the presentation layer, you need some kind of different styling probably. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you have you to do all your own layouts for sure. Yeah, I think if it could be a way to get uh, cross platform apps to work well, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, maybe that's the answer is all WebAssembly needs to take off and take over the world and replace JavaScript is, well, for web apps, we should say, <laughs> is some sort of story that could make it work, I guess, completely without using the DOM. Yeah, if you could do it using just accessibility APIs and graphics APIs and text selection APIs, then it could presumably be, yeah, you, you could build it for browser or desktop or yeah, mobile. Yeah, yeah. All right. TC39 people, I hope you're listening. <laughs> yeah, we solved all the world's problems. So. Yeah, yeah, great. Cool. Thanks so much for joining me. This is really fun. Yeah, thanks very much. It was, it was fun for me too. All right. All right.